Hello all and welcome to the Gadalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Chris Raffalino, editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me along, Rich, and uh, happy National Macadamia Nut Day to you. Oh, that sounds delectable, uh, and I can't wait to have a delicious cookie with one of those enabled issue right now, so we'll keep going, and we'll try and power through it, but just want to give our listeners a heads up there. Uh, first off here, wanted to uh, do a little something we like to call news or we can't do a full discussion of them, so we need just a quick one-sentence rebuttal. Is it news? Is it not? So, Tom, let's get going. Uh, first up here, we have Microsoft and Qualcomm announcing their Vision AI developer kit is now available. It was originally announced back at Build 2018, and the kit includes a Snapdragon 603 processor, 4 gigabytes of LDDR4 XRAM, and 64 gigabytes of onboard storage, with processing of images from an 8 megapixel camera shooting at 4K, and includes a 4 microphone array while they're at it. Uh, this is using uh, what Microsoft is calling edge-to-edge Azure services. On-device, Qualcomm's neural processing engine will utilize containerized Azure uh, uh, AI recognition for faster recognition, then send that off to the cloud for further analysis. Azure IoT Edge will handle individual device management, and the dev kit is available for $249. So, Tom, edge-to-edge machine vision, news or not, or optional dystopia. (laughs) Not dystopia yet. Um, I'd say news, but not for the reason you're thinking. Uh, News, because now Azure is consuming more cloud offerings, and it's available in a quick little package. Yeah, and uh, it uh, it's pretty cool. We actually have a, a little image here. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and show this off here real quick. Uh, I'm disrupting the flow of the news or not, but that's okay. Uh, but yeah, it uh, it's a pretty cool looking piece of kit, uh, and uh, we will see if this turns into an actual product somewhere down the line, like something. You know, this is obviously a dev kit. It can get in people's hands. Where this becomes a quote unquote product, well, we will see down the line. Uh, coming up next here on the news and the na. Uh, we have Microsoft announced Wednesday the addition of uh, its XFAT file system to the Linux kernel. Uh, the XFAT technical spec has been published on Microsoft Docs. It's available there. Microsoft launched XFAT back in 2006, and it's used in most storage devices these days. Microsoft is not open sourcing XFAT, but it is working to include support uh, in a future revision of the Open Innovation Network's Linux system definition. Uh, Microsoft doing more open source ish things news or not here tom not really news uh people that were going to use xfat in the operating system have already built support for it in there because xfat's kind of already been a little bit open anyway but if you're one of those people that believes well i'm talking to you roger stallman if you believe that (laughs) free software is the only software you're still not going to use xfat um you're still going to be using ext2 in your cameras so uh, not really news not ext4 come on tom let's be a little optimistic here All right. Uh, Next up here, AMD Senior Vice President Forrest Norad said that the company's secure encrypted virtualization, or SEV, on its Epic server platform was derived from AMD's work on semi-custom silicon for the PS4 and Xbox One. Really interesting stuff. SEV uses an ARM-secure coprocessor embedded on the x86 chip to cryptographically isolate uh, virtual machines from themselves and from the hypervisor, so kind of no one can see what the other is doing, theoretically allowing a user to trust a cloud-hosted VM that can't be accessed by the cloud provider. Right now, it's 
kind of in the cloud provider's best interest to do that, but there's not necessarily a technical limitation. AMT semi-custom silicon for game consoles using 16 keys and cryptographic isolation to prevent piracy uh, without necessarily impacting performance, while current generation Epic processors support up to 509 keys on that coprocessor. Servers cribbing consoles here, Tom. News or not? Um, I would say it's news, uh, mostly because there are two big drivers for technology innovation. One of them I can't mention because this is a family-friendly show, and the other <laughs> one is the gaming industry. Um, but yeah, the, look at look at what this is. This is basically trying to drive uh, encryption to prevent game piracy. And as more games are getting away from physical disks and being delivered via software downloads, uh, that's a huge deal. And if you just go to YouTube and Google for, um, you know, piracy or um you know breaking drm you can see that this is a huge deal for people so i'm kind of i love how this is being driven by a very unique edge case and it's being distributed across all these workloads and it's an interesting realization that it's kind of the the problem in reverse of you know uh, of you wanting to run your software on something that's wholly out of your hands um and recognizing that as game console and cloud vm uh really interesting uh next up here Google will researchers find verifiably and an unambiguous evidence of data abuse on its platforms. Google will pay a bug bounty if someone identifies situations where user data is being used or sold unexpectedly or repurposed in an illegitimate way without user consent. Also, the app and Chrome extensions will be removed and API access uh, revoked, depending on the nature of the abuse uh, there. There's no reward table necessarily listed, although they've said that there's upwards of $50,000 in bounties available uh, for you know, any individual exploit found. Instagram recently added misuse of data to its bug bounty program as well. Data abuse treated like a bug. News or not here, Tom? Not really news. If you'll excuse me, I have to go close the barn doors now that all of my horses have run out. Um, this would have been news two years ago because, you, you know, the data is what they cared about. Who gives a crap about anything else? This this is too little too late for Google, um, because I'll be honest with you, whatever Google's paying, the data is worth three times as much. All right. Uh, and then uh, coming up here, uh, HPE announced that CEO Dion Weisler will step down due to a family health matter. Uh, HP's president of imaging, printing, and solutions business, Enrique Lores, will become CEO and president effective November 1st. Weisler will assist with transition through January 2020, so not just jumping off ship right away. Uh, Lores has been with HPE for 30 years, I guess HP and then now HPE for 30 years, starting with the engine as an engineering intern and then leading the company's uh, separation management office when it split into HPE. News that HP is losing its CEO kind of during a critical transition uh, period here, Tom, or nah, that Laura's is pretty much going to stay the course given the nature of the transition. Given what's going on, I'm almost positive this was planned ahead of time. You don't, you, people don't just leave. Um, medical emergencies, they've, they, that's a contingency. Um, typically, when CEOs leave in the middle of the night, it's because there's some bad news about to get out about them. So I would say this is probably legit, that this has been planned. Um, that the course of the ship is righted. And um, given the transitions that are going on in the market, I think that this is probably one of those cases of, you know, the old CEO wanted to get out while the getting's good. Interesting now that HPE now has a CEO and a president that are both kind of uh, HPE lifers, for lack of a better term, um, you know, uh, 30 and I think 25 years. Uh, in, uh, I can't, the name of the president now is totally escaping me. Uh, but Interesting that, you know, they, they aren't looking for fresh blood necessarily now at this point to kind of carry the ship going forward, even as they aggressively pursue, you know, a very cloud forward, everything as a service strategy. 
Well, if you want to go ahead and do a search and replace for this story and replace the, the term HP with IBM, um, you'll find it's identical <laughs> uh, down to the we only want people who have been here longer than the, than the carpeting to to run the ship. And it's a very old school way of thinking. Um, I don't know if it's right. I mean, you, you could end up with Satya Nadella. You could also end up with whoever the hell's running Oracle now. All right. Uh, next up here, uh, first big discussion story moving away from News or Nah here. Uh, this just broke this morning that Commvault bought the scale-out storage startup Hedvig for $225 million. This will bring in Hedvig's universal data plane software, consolidating block, file, and object storage into a single API-driven platform. This is a multi-cloud storage option with particular focus on secondary storage, uh, so we can get all the buzzwords out of the way there. Commvault has been making hay on its that it's becoming a data management company as opposed to what it's historically been known to pretty much as a backup provider. Uh, so it fits into that kind of overall vision. Hedvig will continue to offer their solutions under their own brand for the time being, although obviously there's going to be some product synergy going forward with Commvault. Uh, clearly, Commvault getting clouder here. Uh, big news here, Tom. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's really interesting that secondary storage focus um, for kind of where Commvault wants to go in the future. Well, when you look at the history of what's been going on here, this makes a whole lot of sense. First of all, it's a very good exit for Hedvig. Um, we've talked to Hedvig in the past at Tech Field Day, and they they have a really good platform. But again, you know, can you build a platform around a feature? That's a lot of discussion. But let's roll forward. I mean, this time last year, all we could talk about was the fact that Commvault was bleeding cash left and right. And this is a good pickup. Not only have they righted the ship enough to not go out of business, yay, they can <laughs> pick up a company to augment what they're doing. And I think that that is a key aspect of this, is that they are looking beyond backup. Um, when you talk to other companies in the market who do something similar, um, rubric or cohesity, they're not focused on the backup and disaster recovery and business continuity aspect of things because they know they're sitting on a gold mine of data. So what they've got to do is they've got to keep that going and they've got to keep find a way to scale that out as it were. And so I think Commvault's finally getting that picture now that they're clear of all of the mm, badness that was going on last year. Now they can kind of look to the future and decide, okay, this is what we're going to be doing. This is how we're going to be going. And given that Commvault Go is going to be coming up in a couple of months, I'm very interested to see kind of how this integration is going to work. I'm also interested, given that, you know, companies like Cohesity are prominent partners of Commvault, have software running on top of, uh, you know, Commvault hardware in a lot of cases, or, or I'm sorry, uh, you know, vice and vice versa. Um, interested to see how that will play going forward, or if this is just a hedge uh, and to get some smart, some smart software to find storage people in the door as well um, might be, but they, they did pay a hefty premium, uh, you know, kind of over, uh, uh, you know, so not necessarily the biggest transaction, but definitely didn't get a bargain basement price either, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, next up here, uh, at the Open Source uh, uh, Firmware Conference, which is really my favorite conference that I've ever uh, heard of, uh, security researchers demonstrated vulnerability in several uh, super micro, uh, uh, let's see, uh, several super micro baseboard management controllers, easy for me to say, allowing them to exfiltrate data, load a malicious OS, or even take down the server. The attack generally requires enterprise network access, but a sweep by researchers found 47,000 BMCs exposed on the the open internet that could be vulnerable to the exploit with no uh, direct, uh, you know, kind of uh, internal network access. Access could be uh, gained through when logging into the server console with improperly stored login credentials, allowing any username or password to work if there had been a previously successful login attempt. 
uh, and that uh, uh, even Supermicro's own default logins weren't being changed in a lot of these servers, basically letting you change it with just a Google search or using a man-in-the-middle attack because the encryption to these uh, logins wasn't all that great. The researchers alerted Supermicro, and they put out a patch back in June uh, and will be released to all affected servers, although who knows how long it will take people to actually install those. This is basically exposing an a remote USB port to the open internet or to, with a with relatively simple uh, access on a closed network. How does Supermicro let that happen here, Tom? Mm, this isn't Supermicro's fault. Honestly, this is this is the problem with the people who have the BMCs installed in their servers. Whether you call it iDRAC or or whatever else, yeah, I mean, th- this is. You know, go to Shodan.io and just Google or just search for this stuff. Guess what you're going to find? Stupid decisions are getting made all the time. And this ultimately is the problem that we have to understand. BMCs are not, oh, cute, I can turn on ILO and get to my server from anywhere in the world. It is a very specific tool that's designed to do very specific things, and it needs to be treated essentially as a ticking time bomb. Because if you have access globally to that through, you know, whatever method. So you just did a port translation through the firewall because one of your guys needed to get in to configure a server. You've opened yourself up. Someone will catalog it. Someone will get into it later on down the road, even if you don't want them to. You need to be cognizant of everything that's plugged into your network, whether it's the HVAC system, whether it's the thermostats, whether it's the BMCs, anything. If it has an IP address, you better know about it. You better have it written down somewhere and you better be ready for someone to try to break into it. Because guess what? As we've seen over the years, Supermicro does not have the most sterling reputation for being a bastion of exploit-proof computing. Now, whether or not that's blown out of proportion or not, it's just a matter of time. And when you are the, you know, the arms dealer for half of the BMCs in the world and you have an exploit, that's a big problem. Well, I mean, there's the, the one thing I will say is kind of on Supermicro is one using weak encryption to kind of get to that point, allowing for that man in the middle, not having rock solid encryption on that. I don't think necessarily that's on an organization that's deploying it. And two, Mm -hmm. uh, improperly storing those credentials. Again, I don't, Yes, you should be having any organization should be having pen testers trying to get at these these kind of, you know, trying to gain access to systems and that kind of stuff. Maybe that should have come to light a lot sooner. Um, But I also feel like that's on Supermicro as well. Now, given that, you know, I think, Tom, me and you both know people through the Tech Field Day community that recommend, you know, on your server to put rubber cement in all of your USB ports. The idea that it wouldn't be common practice to you know, by default, like never, like have this open for just the the most specific of use cases and otherwise, you know, uh, convenience is the opposite of uh, security in so many instances. Still surprising to see like almost 50,000 of those just available on a simple sweep by the security researchers. Yeah, it's it's a common problem. I mean, yeah, on the one hand, Supermicro took the lazy way out and made the cheapest BMC they could. On the other hand, if you plugged it in right, and you had it air-gapped or had it on a completely different network that's only accessible from the management side, internal only, requires VPN access or jump box access to get to, you can mitigate that risk. So, you know, it's a defense in depth thing. All right. 
Uh, next up here, uh, Google announced neural structured learning, an open framework for training neural networks with graphs and structured data, which I think is really interesting. A lot of uh, neural networks are really focused on more unstructured data, such as images is kind of like one of the most popular ones, image recognition, that kind of stuff. Uh, NSL works on top of TensorFlow machine learning platform and supports creating predictive models from graphical data sets like medical records and can train with supervised, semi-supervised, or unsupervised learning, basically whether you're specifying kind of the intent and the rules um, for the network or you're just kind of letting it do its own thing. Using structured data should allow for a more robust predictive capabilities using a smaller data set, moving away from kind of that, uh, you know, kind of need for these expansive data sets, but that are also extremely brittle when anything that doesn't quite fit into those data sets. In the case of images, it's, you know, you put a, a coat on a dog and all of a sudden it's a sheep. Uh, is this kind of for the framework that will put more neural networks to work in the enterprise time where we know that there is a ton of structured data out there? There is a ton of structured data. And what do you need to have an AI system analyzing it for? I mean, uh, ultimately, ultimately, <laughs> that's going to be the problem. That you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it is. Oh, hey, we can look at the idea that we you've already categorized and tell you things about it. OK, great. Yeah, I, I know that that's a dog. I know that that's a sheep. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't like the, to me, that's the problem is, is that we're drowning in data right now. Mm -hmm. And what, what kind of, what kind of inferences do you want to draw from medical records? I mean, honestly, you know what that sounds like to me? Huge compliance nightmare. I've got this, this software program that's crawling all across my medical records and it's telling me things like, oh, we've seen a, a higher incidence of cancer from people who live around nuclear power plants. Uh, yeah. Okay, great. Um, you know, the problem is, is that the amount of unstructured data that we have is is growing, spiraling out of control. And that's what we need to train neural networks for. But as it turns out, and proof of the story, that's kind of hard. So I don't know that there's going to be any real value that's going to come out of this. I mean, I hope I hope there is. I mean, Google's got to start making money that isn't ads somehow. <laughs> so go for it, guys. Well, I think it is a, an interesting insight. Yes, structured data is not the the data that is, you know, uh, on the graph of every Gartner report that says data is, you know, we're going to have 6 trillion uh, exapetabytes floating out there by 2021 or something like that, right? That That's the problem slide of every single uh, data management startup, right, is that, that data use is spiraling out of control. You're right. That is unstructured data. But the idea of trying to find a way to create these models without requiring 50 billion, uh, you know, it, without requiring the biggest data set that you could possibly imagine and being able to draw insights on a much smaller data set, meaningful. I actually think that could be very useful to, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm failing to think of a specific use case where this might be useful, but there are a lot of smaller enterprises that may, might have meaningful structured data sets that this could apply to, whether they'll be able to, uh, you know, have the, the means to research to find out you know, whether this particular model can be useful to them, I think is another story. Yeah, just let me know if the structured data set involves building chrome-plated robots with access to laser guns and nuclear weapons, because if that's the case, I'm going to go find John Connor tomorrow. All right. And finally, here, we're going to finish up here. You know what I like, Tom? Ads. Last oh. week, the JavaScript library standard started implementing banner ads in terminal after installing it from the NPM package manager. The ads are being served by a project called Funding, which shares ad profits with the companies or with the pro open source projects that have agreed to show those ads. I guess that's kind of how ads work. Uh, after the inevitable backlash, NPM adjusted their policy to ban the practice. Avoiding ad clutter or removing a potentially useful monetization source for open source. Tom, I've seen both takes. I've seen this is reprehensible and never should have happened. Why am I seeing this ad? But also some hand-wringing that, well, 
people got to make money. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I sense your if skepticism you're, already. If your method of monetizing your package is blasting banner ads in my message of the day, we're going to talk. <laughs> I'll get. I, I will get you a part-time job somewhere that you can make money at because this ain't going to fly. And we've seen this over and over and over again. And I know that there's some hand wringing, like you said, and some people, well, we're just, we're just trying to do right by us. And if you remember, there was a big flap about an NPM package that got sold to somebody. Um, I think it was last year. Oh yeah. And then yeah, suddenly the developer just, but, yeah, basically tried to exploit the whole world. I'm sorry, but if you give Superman level superpowers to somebody without the ability to restrict who's using them. And then they sell them off a year from now. And suddenly Lex Luthor has heat vision and can fly. You don't get to throw your hands up and go, well, I <laughs> thought I was doing the right thing. You're right. We all thought we were doing the right thing. And now we're, now we have a supervillain flying around. Do you think that this could have been avoided if uh standard or whoever wanted to serve up these ads had done a better rollout. I, th I think part of the issue here is that this was just rolled out poorly. That people, yeah, either, you know, updated npm, you know, npm dash update or whatever the command is, and all of a sudden they were seeing these ads. That feels like the wrong way to do it. If you're going to do this, it has to be the slowest of slow rollouts. You have to give people the ability to opt in, demonstrate the value mm -hmm. to these open source projects, right? And say, hey, yeah. um, you know, you can on this website go to funding.org or whatever the the website for this for this project is, and say, okay, we're showing this project received a thousand dollars because you opted into these ads and you're helping and you're you're helping to solve bug problems with these open source pro projects or something like that, or reward people for finding those bugs. That to me is how you do this, not uh, hey, roll this out here and and expect. People just to kind of deal with it. Yeah, you have to have statistics. You have to have proof, and you have to have ironclad ar armor that this will not come back to bite you in the rear end when everything is done. The way to commit this is not to do a git push dash dash yolo. Yeah. <laughs> well, well said, Tom. Uh, good stuff uh, as always. That just about brings us to the end here of the Gestalt IT rundown. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? Man, I think I'm all over the internet at this point, kind of like a neural network. No, you can find me at uh, networkingnerd.net. You can find me on Twitter as at networkingnerd. Um, I do have a lot of content coming out on gestaltit.com, though. We've uh, we've had a lot of events recently. We've had uh, VMworld, Mobility Field Day, Security Field Day. We've got Networking Field Day coming up. I've got a lot of coverage there. Also, a lot of great uh, briefings that I've taken about some up-and-coming technology that you're not going to want to miss. Definitely. So check it out, gestaltit.com, and you can find stuff from me there as well. You can also find me on Twitter, at Mr. Anthropology. That's M-R Anthropology. For all tweets uh, about ice cream or not, I was uh, kind of hankering for some last night, and that uh, pretty much consumed all of my waking thoughts. Uh, until the next time we meet, which is Wednesdays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, remember, everybody, to have the most super and sparkly of days. Take care, everybody.